hope. In fact, would you say that word with me? Hope. Even the sound of it kind of rings with promise and expectation. Now understand something. There is something different about our kind of hope, what I refer to as Webster hope, than biblical hope. And this morning I want to talk to you about biblical hope. But before I do, let me just make sure I clarify what Webster hope is. You see, Webster hope, based on their online dictionary, is is to cherish or desire with anticipation. Nothing wrong with that definition. To cherish or desire with anticipation. And this really abounds at Christmas. You know, things like, I hope I get an iPod for Christmas. Um, my wife in here, I think, somewhere, right? Uh, you know, some kids may say, I hope I get a Tickle Me Elmo, or some may say, I hope I get a Lexus. I mean, hope abounds at Christmas, doesn't it? It's a desire, a cherished desire or anticipation. You know, sometimes Webster hope finds itself into more serious areas of life as well. I hope I keep my job next year, some may say. I hope I get married next year. I hope I can beat my cancer. So hope is not just trivial, but it does work itself and weave its way into all areas of our life. But the problem with Webster hope is that even at best, it is based on an uncertainty. For instance, let's say a couple says, I hope we get pregnant soon. That kind of hope, believe it or not, is a wish. Not a certainty. Now, granted, you can do everything humanly possible to help that hope along, right? Based on the facts of life and what you know about reproduction, you can do everything in your power to make that wish come true. But at its fundamental level, it is still a hope. And sometimes, life has a way of dashing our hopes, doesn't it? When you've done everything you can do, everything humanly possible, sometimes hope is left unfulfilled. You know why? Because Webster hope, human hope, that hunch that something better is just around the bend, at its fundamental level is still based on an uncertainty. And that's the the major difference between what I call Webster hope and biblical hope. You see, biblical hope has as its foundation, as its root, a promise. Not just an uncertainty, but a certain person. And that's the massive major difference between Webster hope and biblical hope. Right, let me give you a definition of biblical hope. Ready? You might want to jot this down because I think it will be a, a good learning point for a lot of us in this room. What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is a present confidence about the future based on past promises. A present confidence about the future, but based on past promises. And I take this from, and you might want to jot this reference down, I take this from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Where it says this. This is what the Bible calls hope. Listen very carefully. The Bible says that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Now think about that. The Bible says hope is an anchor. That's something, here's the verse, firm and secure. 
Nowhere in all of American culture can you say hope is an anchor because it's always based on an uncertainty. Even the, the best laid plans could possibly go awry. But with biblical hope, the Bible says in Hebrews 6.19 that it is a, an anchor firm and secure. And why is that true? Because Hebrews 6.18, the verse right before it says this. Listen very carefully. That this hope rests on an oath made by God. And listen very carefully to this. We can have present confidence, present confidence about the future based on the past promises of God because our hope is, as believers rests on someone, not something. At this time of year when lots of people are hoping for something, we hope because of someone. Hallelujah. Amen. And therein lies the difference. At Christmas, people hope for things. But at Christmas, we hope because of someone. This morning, I want to show you from Matthew 2, this kind of hope that the wise men had, the Magi, and how it motivated them to continue in their search for the ultimate King, that Christ child who was born in Bethlehem. Look with you in Matthew chapter 2. Let's notice some things about biblical hope that's tied into a person, not into things. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1, the Bible says this, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. These first couple of verses show us that there was a Magi from the east, and they saw a star in the east. Now, Let's take a minute here and kind of set the record straight on just exactly who the Magi are. A lot has been written, a lot has been passed down about who are Magi. What is the wise man? Well, I think it's helpful to understand, first of all, the Magi were, were not kings, but they were advisors to kings. They would be like the cabinet of our culture today. They were those counselors. and In fact, they were probably the king makers. They were the ones who kind of filtered out the the pool of kingly candidates, and they would elect and select who would be the next king. And they were probably from Persia or Babylon, and they saw a star over in that same area. Now, you think about who, how would people, wise men, kingly advisors in the East, really know about something happening over in the, in the Middle East, perhaps, or, or west of them? How would all of that come about? Well, that's an interesting question. Because the Magi stem from a very biblical character. I want you to think with me here. Watch this. I believe, based on the book of Daniel, that Daniel and his three cohorts, you remember them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I believe those four were actually some of those magi who were originally in Babylon, the Persian area. In fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 2, did you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually referred to as, quote, wise men? Here's what I think happened. I think when those Jews were captured and taken to Babylon, the king, if you recall, picked out the best of the Jewish bunch. Do you remember that? And he put them into his group of magi. And he had them trained and he had them uh, learn the sciences. Read Daniel chapter 2. You'll find that he had them learn all the things that the magi learned. Some folks would call it astrology. I would disagree. I think it's astronomy. And they learned all about the heavens, the stars, the atmosphere, the sciences, the cultures. Now, was there a worldly perversion of that in Babylon? Yes, but God somehow put His godly men in the middle of that arena and they were able to, in a godly way, live out their Jewish lifestyle amidst other Gentile magi. 
Now, as you know, later on, the Jewish people left Babylon and they went back to Jerusalem. I believe it's under it's those Gentiles that were still remaining in Babylon that is spoken of here. Now, not the exact ones. We're talking hundreds of years later. But that same generation of Magi, that's where they come from, that, Babylon, that Babylonian era. You say, well, Todd, how did they know to look towards the west from the east for a star? That's a good question too. Watch this, guys. You know that the only book of the Bible that tells us exactly when Christ was going to be born is the book of Daniel. The only one that tells us exactly the dates. Daniel 9. You might want to jot that reference down. And did you know that in Daniel 9, guess what angel told Gabriel the exact date of Christ's birth? What, what angel told Daniel? It was Gabriel. Excuse me. It's a lot of names and dates people work with me here, right? It was, the, it was Gabriel who also told Mary. Remember that? So Gabriel told Daniel... 400-something years prior to the birth of Jesus, the same thing he told Mary a few months prior to the birth of Jesus. Which was what? That a Savior would be born. Now, in Daniel 9, Gabriel said this. He said, listen here, Daniel, write this down. In about 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, a Messiah is going to come forth. So, as a Magi, Daniel writes all this down, doesn't he? He's scrolling this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so after he leaves from his exile, after he passes away and, and the next group of Magi come and then the next generation, guess what's also passed down? Daniel's writings. So you see what I'm saying is that probably somewhere in this, in this time from Matthew 2, months prior to this, they began to read things that even Daniel had written. And they start surmising. And they see that God said a star would rise in the east. That's, by the way, from Numbers chapter 24. That's a very obscure prophecy. But if you're a Magi and you're trained in Old Testament prophecy, astronomy, the sciences, you're looking for this stuff. This is what you do full time. You check things out in the past. You look up to, to the heavens that God made in the firmament. And you just say, how is God declaring His glory? That's what the psalmist says, right? And so they begin to figure out. A star is in the east. It's 483 years from what Daniel said to the time of the birth. Guess what? I think, guys, that's about now. So somewhere around the the time of Christ's birth. Some wisely, kingly advisors loaded up the truck and moved to Bethlehem. All apologies to the Clampets, right? That's where they headed. Because they knew what God had said in the past, they took action in the present with confidence about the future. Did you catch that? Don't let the words fool you. Because they knew what God said about the past, they took action in the present and moved forward looking to the future. See, that tells me something about hope. Write this first thing down. Biblical hope finds its source in God. A very simple but profound understanding from Matthew 2. Just knowing that the Magi were from the east, they saw a star in the east, just knowing who the Magi were, where they came from, and, and their whole history and background shows me something. That they didn't just leave the east on a hunch... They didn't just think, good night, uh, I'm looking for a way to take a vacation. Let's, let's pretend a baby's going to be born and head, head west. They looked to the past. They read God's revealed Word. They found the source of true information and revelation. And based on that, they looked to the future with confidence by making decisions in the present. I want to say to you something, guys. Biblical hope finds its source in God. Not the Des Moines Register, 
USA Today, New York Times, MSN. Well, they said this would come true. You know, uh, TV 13 promised the weather would be sunny today. All of those are avenues of hope based on an uncertainty. But when you look at God's Word and can with assurance declare what the future is going to be like, like the wise men did, like those magi, you can make confident decisions about the present. Biblical hope finds its source in God. People often wonder, what will happen when I die? Is hell real? Do miracles really happen? Did they really occur in Bible times? Does God really hear me when I pray? Can my marriage really be restored? Is it possible to really be content? What on earth am I here for? People wonder those questions. And you know what? You can take them to the bookstore. Get them a self-help book if you like. Here's a better idea. Sit down with them and share God's Word with them. Because this is the certainty. This is the assurance. This is the real way to hope. Amen? For instance, someone may be here this morning who's lived their whole life thinking that that being good enough is the way to heaven and God. And for a man of my young age at 42 to stand up and say, what do you mean I can get to heaven just by simply believing? I've heard my whole life if you're just good enough, you'll get there. But the Bible says in Romans 3 that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. That's what the Bible says. So with great hope, we can stand secure that it's not based on what we've done or didn't do, but based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Grace and faith alone. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we have a confidence about the present and the future. That's the hope we have. There may be a man or woman here who's thinking that pride and ambition are the way to the top of your profession. That the way to influence your spheres is, is through the, the old human get up and go. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that, that nothing should be done through strife or selfish ambition, but that in humility we should each esteem others better than themselves. You know what the way to real success is, especially in relationships? is humility. No expectations and a constant attitude of service. Pop, that doesn't ring true with what I read from the latest leadership magazine. Take your pick. A confident hope in God's Word that humility is the best way to see success in relationships or the world's best hope with uncertainty that if you push and push, you might get to the top. You see, I'll take my, I'll stake my claim right here every time. Amen? And can I just share with you personally? You may think this is crazy, but I think that's something that a lot of people in our culture are looking to see. A church completely committed to the inerrancy of the Word of God. And every week that I live, I hear about churches. And this is the circle I run in. Churches and pastors and religious people. I hear more and more about people in our country who are selling out to some feel-good gospel, to some kind of like um, practical theology that, you know, if it works in the end, it must be okay. And, and I'm not going into a lot of detail here. I just want to tell you something. I think there, our culture, Ankeny, Iowa, needs a church that is committedly um, grounded in Scripture. And we proclaim hope, not based on what on our methods or how we feel about things, but on the Word of God. And I extend to you this morning the hope of God in the pages of Scripture. From things that 
regarding your eternal destiny, all the way down to how to get along with your spouse, all the way to how to spend your money if you're single, how to find the right job. God's Word holds the key. Amen? That's what makes first family first family. That's what makes biblical hope truly biblical. When the world says, proceed with caution, it's a, it's a pretty good bet. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty sure shot. God can say, proceed with confidence. That's biblical hope. Well, the Magi had done the math. They had read Daniel. They had read Micah. They had read Numbers. And they walk into Jerusalem saying, we have seen a star in the east and we have come to worship Him. You don't find any doubt in those sentences, do you? Like, hey, I think He's somewhere in this area. We suspect He might be born here. We could have been wrong. Man, there was such a great confidence with the Magi based on what God had said. You know, what I find very odd, though, is that while they were confident, those who were closest to Bethlehem, just five miles north in Jerusalem, the capital city where you think they'd have their own set of wise men who would be extremely in touch with God's law, right? They missed it. Wise, kingly advisors, thousands of miles away, got it and traveled, not on a hunch, but based on good confidence, and those closest by missed it. Look at Matthew 2 in the next few verses. Will you read with me some more? Look at verse 3. The Bible says that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's a great line, isn't it? No doubt he was. A king, you're going to worship him, but I'm the king. So all Jerusalem with him was disturbed. You know why they were disturbed, don't you? Because Herod was a murderer. He was a tyrant. He had killed one of his former wives. He killed three of his own sons. He was not the most secure individual on the face of the earth, okay? I mean, Herod had some really emotional issues. So when they heard he was disturbed, I guess most dinner tables were like, hey, kids, wife, uh, people, we're disturbed as well. So then Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. That's interesting. He called together law teachers who did not see the star in the east, but it's actually in one of the books of the law, Numbers 24, where God prophesied a star would rise in the east. Isn't that odd? Their own teachers couldn't read their own laws. And he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Here's Micah being quoted again in this heathen palace. He says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? You have the same information from Micah, Daniel, and Numbers and two totally different responses. And perhaps here's what I learned most from the Magi. Just jot this down. Hope finds soil in a seeking heart. Not only is the source of hope a biblical hope in God, but did you know that biblical hope finds its soil in a seeking heart. What did God say several times to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament? He would say, make this statement. You will find me when what? You seek me with all your heart. It's almost as if there's a condition that, watch this guys, you find what you're looking for. People usually see what they want to see, don't they? In fact, I think this is probably the most poignant lesson the Magi teaches. You do find what you're looking for. The Magi were looking for a king. They were looking to worship the Christ child. And they searched and they found him. But five miles north in the very hometown of, of 
of God's people, the capital. They refused to see what was plainly written. And guess what? They didn't see it. I want to make a statement to you. Listen very carefully. Hope eludes those who do not, who do not want to see the truth. Did you catch that? Hope eludes those who don't want to see the truth. You could bring two people here that are in this building this morning. Same information. Same Scriptures. Same Deliverer. Same program. One person will leave and laugh and say, I don't believe any of that. That's just a crutch. Religion is just kind of a disguise. And yet the other person may even say, wow, God was really evident. His Word is so clear. We can trust in the Lord. Different responses, same message. You know why? Because usually you see what you want to see. You find what you're looking for. That's why this morning, I just want to ask every person here not to miss the reason for this season. I know that's a trite statement. I got a new twist on it, though. Don't commit treason by missing the reason for the season. That's what it is, by the way. For the teachers of the law, as it says here in verse 4, and the chief priests, those who should have been able to know even, even better than anyone and direct the people to the Christ child, for them to say, hey, here's what it says, but we don't see it. Man, that's more than missing something. That's spiritual treason. And people all in your neighborhood, maybe even here this morning, are committing Christmas treason by refusing to say Merry Christmas and see the Christ child in the manger as the King. I'm all for happy holidays. I'm all for Yuletide seasons. I'm probably the biggest Christmas fanatic in here. But I tell you, you take Christ out of it and you can have it. And I don't want to commit treason at First Family. Folks say, well, we're going to celebrate Christmas, you bet. And every year for four weeks, if I have anything to do with it. We're going to sing all Christmas songs. we got our building. We're going to decorate. We're going to make it a big deal. You know why? Because, man, I want to celebrate the reason for the season. I don't want to miss it. I don't want anybody near State Street to miss it when our building goes up. I hope the whole outside's so lighted that they don't even need to turn lights on the soccer fields. Just turn First Family's lights on. We'll light up the whole neighborhood. And I want everybody to know, wow, what are they so excited about? I'll tell you what we're excited about. We have read the Scriptures. We've seen the prophecies. Jesus Christ was real. He was born in Bethlehem. Don't miss it. You see what you want to see. And you know what? To a seeking heart. And I sometimes see hope as, a, as looking for a place to land almost. And when someone's looking and searching, and biblical hope, with God as its source, finds that place and lands. It just needs a little fertile soil and it starts sprouting. Is your heart filled with hope this morning? Are you curiously seeking, searching? Or has life turned you off to, to the Bible's truth? How will you leave this morning? Well, the Magi searched. They came with confidence. And sure enough, they found what they were looking for. They found the Christ child. Look with me at verse 7. It says that Herod called one of the Magi secretly and, and found out from them exact, the exact time the star had appeared. And so he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As if that's what, not what they were going to do. Of course they're going to do that. That's what they came to this area for. As soon as you find him, report to me so I may go and worship him. Herod's a deceitful crook. 
He has no desire to, to worship the Christ child. But they heard the king and they went on their way and, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. You know, I don't know if that was a supernova. Some think it was kind of a supernova a combination of several stars at a moment in history when it gets brighter. Some think it was a common... I have a simple explanation. I think it was a miracle. I think God put a star in the sky that was especially bright that appeared and reappeared and moved and guided them. I don't feel a need to explain it astronomically. I just seem to say it means what it says. God put a star up there. It appeared and reappeared and they followed it. And it says that when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, look at this next phrase. They saw the child. Isn't that a great phrase? You know what that is? That's hope fulfilled. I learned something else about hope from this passage and this phrase. The last thing I'll share with you is this. Hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus. True biblical hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Not in the iPod, the Tukumielmo, or the Lexus. Amen? But in Jesus. They saw the child and they bowed down and they worshipped Him. They opened their treasures and they presented Him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by, a, by another route. Wow, can you imagine being part of that entourage of, of people? I knew it, one might have said. Or just like I thought it would be. I'm not sure how the comments were, but I imagine there were some significant comments when they saw the child. Now, we have a little bit of urban legend creeping in here again. Because we know the, these wise men, these magi, and their entourage saw the child where? Not at the stable, but at the house. We know that the word here used is child, not infant. So probably, these men were several months in coming to, to see Christ. And so they see the Christ boy, and they worship Him. It, it makes for a nice nativity scene to have all the wise men there, and the shepherds, and the animals. The problem is it's probably just not true. There's a little slight problem there, right? They came after the fact, and were probably just with the Christ child all by themselves. And by the way, I tend to think it was a massive entourage of people. Most of these kingly advisors had um, not camels, but horses. And they had servants, and they had slaves, and they had meal preparers, and they had lots of people helping them with their work. This is probably not just like a stop and visit, but I suspect that from the street, folks began to get word, Hey, look what's coming, look what's coming. Word got down to Mary and Joseph, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, you better get ready. They bring Christ to the front door. Either maybe He's barely walking, maybe they're holding Him, who knows. And suddenly out uh, come all these wise men, these magi, and then they bring these gifts. Which, by the way, not only helped the, the, uh, the first family, I'll call them that, is that okay? Not only helped the first family with what was to come, but when they fled to Egypt, remember that? These gifts, I think, helped them financially. When Joseph took them and fled away, they had to have a way to survive. And I think some of these gifts were very important in giving them resources. But it's also a very prophetic time. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I believe the gold was speaking to his deity. I believe the frankincense, excuse me, I believe the gold was speaking to his royalty. That he was a king. His frank, the frankincense there to his deity, that he was God. And the myrrh there to his humanity. That he was about to die. And some folks say, you know what, the myrrh was given, it's, a, it's an embalming type of spice or ointment or perfume type of thing. And, and so that was a signal he was going to die. But did you know that several times in the Bible, 
Myrrh is also used in celebrations. So here's the point. These three gifts were prophetic. They were, they, they were, they were uh, foreseeing in their, in their, in their uh, nature. All of this was probably from the, from the Magi reading the Scriptures, believing in God's promises, finding their fulfillment in Jesus, and then what did they do? They worshipped Him. Can I say to you with, 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 with kindness and respect, hope fulfilled in anything else is just kind of Webster hope. You know, Christmas morning when you get your iPod, or maybe you get the Lexus and they, they film you and you're the next commercial, you know, the bow on top or something. Or, or maybe when your kid does get the Tickle Me Elmo. You know, that's pretty nice. You know how long that lasts, though? It lasts maybe ten minutes. Okay, the Lexus might last an hour. Okay, no, I'm kidding you there. It's a joke. But no matter what it is we get on, a, on earth, that, that which fulfills our hope is at best temporary. At best. One of my cars this week broke down. I didn't get it as a gift last year or anything, but I'm thinking, man, I'm glad I don't hope in this car to get to work. I mean, everything we get that we hope for, and if that fulfills our hope, it's at best temporary. But when Jesus Christ is our fulfillment of hope, that's eternal because He is eternal. You see, again, it comes back to something versus someone. And just to shed some more light on this, throughout the New Testament, the early writers referred to Christ as our hope. Uh, Paul told Timothy, he said that, let me make sure I get the right verse here, it's in, um, excuse me, he told Titus, he said that the glorious appearing of our, God, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he called that the blessed hope. When Christ comes back and we see Him, that's our blessed hope, it's a surety. Um, Paul calls Christ in us the hope of glory. John said that anyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Guys, listen very carefully. On earth, until we see Jesus, our hope is still left partially unfulfilled. But there's a day coming when we will see Christ face to face. And at that moment, the Bible says, our hope will be realized or completed. That's why that old songwriter could write, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all trouble will erase. And then what do you say? So bravely run the race till we see Christ. That's the hope we're looking for. Hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Which hope do you have this morning? Webster hope? Biblical hope. I encourage every single person this morning at First Family to find their hope rooted in the Word of God, soiled, so to speak, fertilized by a seeking heart, and fulfilled in Jesus. If you find yourself sometimes looking forward to the, the second coming of Christ, the, the possibility of going home to heaven, you know what, that's probably not so bad. Paul said in, in his writings that there were oftentimes he wished that they could die because that would be gain. You say, Todd, that sounds almost sadistic, kind of weird. I think the, the, the heart in touch with Christ realizes that, you know, at best, my hope is still just, just, just 
just not quite fulfilled until I see Him face to face. That's biblical hope. If you find all of your satisfaction here on earth, that would worry me. But when we see Christ, that's when it's complete. The footprints left for us this morning are footprints of hope. This morning it's my desire to ignite in you biblical hope. It must be rooted in God, planted in a believing heart, and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Anything less than that, folks, is a strong hunch. It'll make you feel good, but it won't carry you the distance. Can we pray this morning as we wrap things up?